Hey, chiropractors and marketers, we are ready for another modern chiropractic marketing show with Dr. Kevin Christie, where we discuss the latest in marketing strategies, content marketing, direct response marketing, and business development with some of the leading experts in the industry. Welcome to another episode of the Modern Chiropractic Marketing Show. This is your host, Dr. Kevin Christie, and today I'm going to be bringing you a, an interview. You know, this podcast is not only just marketing, but it's also business development and, uh, you know, even personal development in a lot of ways. I don't dive a ton into it, but I think you, if you've listened to enough of this episode, it's a big part of what has helped me grow in, as far as practice, personal life, things of that nature. We've brought in finances before, and today we actually have an interview with Garrett Gunderson. Uh, that's an exciting one for me. That, to me, when I got the opportunity a couple months ago to know that I was going to interview him, I was really excited. So I will dive into that in a little bit. But before we do dive into what Garrett does and, and then obviously the interview with him, uh, I wanted to cover the basics, You know, go over our, our wins, our obstacle, and our Facebook highlight. As far as our win, uh, I just found out recently, finally, it's kind of been an up and down battle, but the Blue Cross Blue Shield Ash thing in Florida back in April of 2015, they got uh, kind of eaten up by that third-party administrator, American Specialty Health. But it basically, since August of 2015 until January of 2018, they had me listed incorrectly and were processing my claims incorrectly. We finally got to admit that, and I have a substantial amount of claims that are going to be reprocessed now, and there's money in those claims, which it should be very, very nice, especially in the summer months. So that was a big win for us in practice. It's been a long battle with my billing person and them, and them trying to fight it. But finally, it looks like we we won that battle, which was nice. I guess I should wait till the money actually comes into the to the bank account. But overall, they have admitted that they were wrong and they do need to reprocess the claim. So good. Good for us. As far as an obstacle, uh, I do have a vacation coming up. I, I try to take a nice vacation every year. Going to be going over to Europe at the end of August, early September uh, for 11 days. And uh, this is the first time since 2011 in my Boca Raton office I don't have an associate, so I will have to have some very minimal coverage, minimal hours, uh, and that will be an obstacle, obviously, uh, financially and just from our patient standpoint, not being here as much as they probably need. Uh, but hopefully this will be the last time that that happens as far as taking a vacation without a, a doctor here. But, you know, I'm, I'm a big believer in vacations and free days. I think it really is a necessary thing that, unfortunately, too many of us chiropractors do not do. We, we kind of sacrifice that part of our life, and it's not a, not a healthy thing. So uh, definitely uh, going to be taking a vacation. The Facebook highlight I wanted to just go over is pretty exciting. You know, with, with these Facebook groups, they actually give you, if you are the admin of the group, they give you really good insights of how your audience is and your growth and things of that nature. And you can do it based on like the last seven days, last 28 days, last 60. But over the last 60 days, uh, we've had a 42% increase in new members. That's 300. We've had 321 new members and we've actually declined 119. Um, I get a lot of people that are not chiropractors and, you know, all kinds of different other, you know, sometimes they're just random people. Sometimes they're marketers. Sometimes it's just a lot of different things. So we try to only approve people that we know are going to be engaged into this group and be helpful. So we've had that aspect of it. And then you can actually measure the engagement as well. And over the last 60 days of engagement, 
We've had a nice, uh, we've had a 30% increase in posts. We've had a 48% increase in comments and a 58% increase in reactions. So those are nice numbers. So not only are we growing as far as people in the group, but we're growing as far as engagement continuously. And I think we've all been part of Facebook groups where uh, it's kind of a ghost town or it's the the admin is the only one posting in there and there's not a lot of comments or engagements and things of that nature. I'm excited that we've got such a great group of folks in the group that contribute and uh, I think a lot of people are learning from that. So thank you if you are in the Facebook group of the same name, Modern Chiropractic Marketing Group. Uh, I really appreciate the growth that you are helping everybody achieve in their own practices. So, all right. So let's, uh, let's go into a little bit of an introduction of Garrett Gunderson. Uh, for me, I read his book, Killing Sacred Cows. Many of you have maybe heard that. I don't know if everybody's heard of it or or heard of Garrett, but he's uh, very well known in the topic of money and finance. And it's a topic that he tackles um, and it's very uh, important. Yet normally it's just neglected by most business owners. I know for me it was as well. I know it was one of the things that I money was coming in and I just didn't really deal with it so detailed or just have a plan, frankly. So I think most of people that are entrepreneurs and, and chiropractors you know, just find it uh, sometimes a boring subject or the presenters are boring on it and it's not a, a really good way of learning that we have. But, you know, as an entrepreneur, you know, financial advocate, Garrett's, you know, founder of an Inc. 500 firm and author of the New York Times bestselling book, Killing Sacred Cows. He has uh, dedicated his career to making personal finance for entrepreneurs simple, immediately actionable, and even enjoyable. He's been a regular on ABC's Good Money. He has also been interviewed on Fox, CNBC, as well as hundreds of other radio interviews and podcasts. He's a paid contributor for Forbes and has spoken at MIT. You know, the list really goes on with with Garrett as far as the books he's written, the contribution he's made. Uh, he just does an amazing job of providing information that can be very difficult and making it very digestible for the layperson, right? And so I think that's the one of the key ingredients to people that can facilitate information. And as you're going to find in this interview that we had, he's just a wealth of knowledge and, and can speak on it in a way that we non-experts in finance and money can really uh, digest it. So without further ado, here is my interview with Garrett Gunderson. All right. Welcome to the show, Garrett. I really appreciate your time. You know, Before we dive into some of the, the details, tell us a little bit about yourself, both uh, professionally and personally. Well, personal side, I have two kids, 10 and 13. We've been taking them to Europe for the summers for the last little bit. So I feel like that's helping them grow up and helping me connect with them and not spending so much time just wrapped up in work when I'm there. I kind of just take a break. Uh, I've been married for 16 years now. I uh, just celebrated an anniversary in Paris, which is a pretty cool place to celebrate an anniversary. And uh, I like to do a little bit of stand-up comedy just to become a more interesting speaker and have a lot of fun. And it's really good feedback. People either laugh or they don't. So you know whether it's successful or not. So that's just a little bit on the personal side. That's cool. Now, do you pick different uh, cities, countries in Europe each summer, or is it always the same one? The last two years, we've spent time in Italy. This year, we went for a month and we spent a third of the time in Paris, a third of the time in, in Italy, and a third of the time in Croatia. So we kind of 
split it up this time. Uh, you're, you're living the dream that I kind of came up to like four months ago. I was like, you know, when I, I don't have kids yet, but when that does happen, I was like, you know, I'm going to do six weeks or so in, in a different area in the summer and get them a lot of exposure. I'm sure it's amazing. It's a good way for them to expand and grow to a certain degree. Mm-hmm. I think it's a pretty good methodology so far. And it's fun for, for us. So yeah. That's always good too. Absolutely. You know, one of the things that my audience of of chiropractors, I try to really implement with them. And a lot of this is from my strategic coach training. I know you have a background in that as well, is kind of freedom, you know, and and have that ability to do that. I think some of our audience members listening to that now might be saying that's uh, not a possibility for them. And I, and I, I like to disagree with that, you know, because I think it's a possibility for anybody if they, if they want that to be uh, for them. But I think, there's many reasons what's holding chiropractors back, but obviously a lot of it is is financial. Are you seeing that across many industries and many different types of people? I mean, most people want to be business owners, but find themselves trapped in a job that actually requires more hours than any other job because they're responsible for far too much. And it's a really hard world as far as scaling goes, because there's a lot of people that have talked about working on the business versus in the business. There's people that have talked about you know, being more of a business owner than a business runner. But when you're the person that's in it, it's kind of like a fish in water, hard to describe the water. It's just the environment that you're used to. And I think what gets a business successful initially is hard work combined with, you know, innovation and ingenuity. But it's that same work ethic and hard work that can kind of trap them inside of that job. So, I mean, I started out 20 years ago as a one-on-one financial advisor. So the thought of going away for a couple of days, I would be thinking about the money I was losing. There'd be work piling up while I'm gone. And, you know, there weren't dollars rolling in to where I've been, the, you know, the last seven years as far as spending some time in Europe and, uh, you know, being able to spend extended time. It was a step-by-step process where I had to let go of certain things when I grasped for others, where I had to learn how to hire at a totally different level and recruit than when I first started, where I had to allow other people to do things and even make mistakes sometimes versus trying to do it all on my own. And most importantly, I had to learn how to delegate beyond just giving people tasks to complete, but giving people real roles and responsibilities that they owned. And, you know, as time went on, having division of labor, support, specialization and support, truly leaving my plate with things and instead having more time to write, record, you know, speak, and build high-level relationships and have time to think about the vision. So if I would have tried to do that overnight, I think the business would have collapsed. I think I would have collapsed because it would have been really difficult to give those things up because they were validating for me as I was delivering that value. But I think as we evolve and as we elevate, we have to grasp for the next level, but let go of some of the things at the lower level. And even if it's not a lower level, just things that aren't our best abilities, I think that people either run too quickly or completely afraid of it, never try. And so they have that kind of notion of, hey, this isn't possible. How do other people do this? Do you have to be born with wealth? Do you have to come from a life of privilege? Well, I came from a coal mining town, so no, you don't. Exactly. You know, in one of the books that I'm familiar with that you you wrote was Killing Sacred Cows. What did you consider to be the most revolutionary concept that you that you shared in that? And, and why would that be? Well, I think that there's three main concepts that weren't really written about much before or if at all. The first one I think is probably the most revolutionary is so much more commonplace 10 years later, which is the opening chapter, the finite pie. You know, my belief is no amount of luck or saving or discipline or rate of return or financial advisor 
will save you if you're in the scarcity mindset. Even if there's a finite amount of resources, we have human ingenuity, we have exchange that creates wealth, we have the ability to deliver value in new and more efficient ways, and therefore, dollars continue to exchange hands, and the more value that's provided, the more wealth that can happen, and we can see that over the last several hundred years. You know, there's so many people living better lives, so much more wealth, and what would be considered middle class today would have been the top opulent people hundreds of years ago. So I think that that chapter was revolutionary. I think now it's more commonplace. But the other two chapters that I feel would be revolutionary is the chapter on debt, because most people misidentify what debt is. And the other one is on self-insurance, which is a misnomer and a myth that holds a lot of people back because they think that they can avoid risk or that somehow that they shouldn't transfer risk and they take it on themselves and they're one mishap or issue away from putting a major dent in their legacy or completely being derailed. Because look, we all are in store for financial surprises. We can prepare for most of those. And I think that the way that people think about saving money by eliminating insurance actually increases their cost in a lot of ways because of the lost production, even if it lowers the price on the policies. No, it makes a lot of sense. And I wanted to touch on those two things. As far as the debt aspect, obviously, we're talking to a bunch of doctors that uh, are, especially the younger ones, uh, I'll give myself, I'm, I'm out 13 years, so I'll give myself as an example, and then I'll give you what the newer grads are. I was about 150000 for chiropractic school at a 3.1%, which isn't bad. Uh, they're now coming out at a little over 200000 into the 6%. And so they're dealing with the student loan debt, and then they're also dealing with potential the debt of opening up their own own practice. And and it seems to be kind of a a killer for them. Is any insights on that? Student loans are becoming an increasing problem for the entire nation because it's putting people in a deeper and deeper hole. And here's my biggest issue with them. When we're not making a payment right now and we're deferring it till we graduate, and then we're looking at what the payments will be, people are doing this out of what they feel is the only option and necessity. And unfortunately, um, if you're going to be a doctor, you have to go to school to become a doctor legally, whereas in business, there's no amount of requirement of school. There's just kind of a perceived notion that you have to go in order to have the knowledge. But the reality is that that's not been true based upon the studies and the statistics and a lot of data. So the question is, if you work along the way, Does that take away from the college experience, from studying and from learning what you need to learn? Well, maybe, but maybe it's a matter of working in the very profession that you're going to be serving so you can start learning from the best that are out there and seeing if you can make some money along the way. But I'm here to say that I think the biggest detriment to it is the mindset that's created of scarcity when people feel like they have this heavy weight on their back when they're starting out and they're making short-term decisions just because of student loan cash flow that they have to handle. And what that does, not only to the psyche, but overall, the risk to the entire profession and to any medical profession, because I can't imagine that someone wants to go get a quarter of a million or more, maybe depending on the area that you choose, maybe up to 400,000, 500,000, so that you're starting in that deep of a hole. And the asset you have is a permission slip to go start a career, not necessarily the technical know-how and not the business sense that's behind it. So I think that the failure rate we're going to see is going to increase unless we really start addressing this head on. 
I agree. One of the things that I wanted to discuss with you about that, because uh, we're going to kind of dive into the the entrepreneur aspect now. And so obviously debt plays a big role into that, but also uh, tax strategies uh, do. Um, anything to kind of lay out for us on that aspect of it? Because I think it's something that's going unsaid with a lot of the business owners. Look, as a business owner, you have one of the biggest advantages when it comes to taxes, although increased complexity, because the first few hundred pages of the tax code is exactly why and when you need to pay your taxes. The next several thousand pages are the tax-free roadmap for the business owner. So most people are overpaying their taxes. We did in, it's been a little while, but in 2011, we did a study just with chiropractors. How many chiropractors were overpaying taxes? And this was a uh, where I was specifically on the phone with them, talked to 117 chiropractors. 107 of them have overpaid their taxes. We're now launching in a more official survey where we've got an entire kind of database set up to find out the information and have CPAs look over taxes and see if that holds true to this day and across the board. And I think we're going to find out it's even higher because there's now a completely new tax system that's been initiated that it's hard to interpret and and understand now in 2018. But here's the good news. I'm going to simplify it right now. There's three main things to focus on when it comes to saving tax. One has to do with the nature of the team and how you communicate with them. The second thing has to do with how you take your tax deductions and the questions to ask. And the third thing has to do with how you classify your income, which has a lot to do with your corporate structures, where you're trying to take taxable income to tax-free income or active income to passive income or ordinary income to long-term capital gain. So let's begin with the first piece, which is how you build the team, who's on the team, and how do you communicate with the team? There's up to four people required. If you're just starting out, it's maybe just a bookkeeper because if you don't have the data on time, you're going to overpay taxes. So you want to have that data coming in as close to real time as possible. The second person on the team is a CPA, and the CPA's primary responsibility is that second column of tax deductions. Their job is to help you understand what is tax deductible and what isn't and proactively build the plan. Number three is a tax attorney and or corporate attorney. So this could be anything from someone setting up the right entity structures for you. Should you be a sole proprietor, an S-corp, an LLC, or even a C-corporation? What are the advantages and disadvantages, especially as it relates to tax? And maybe you need to have more than one entity depending on your type of business. Then the fourth piece is if you own your own building, you want an engineer because they can do something called a cost segregation study, which we'll get into. So you build this team, one to four people, right? And that that bookkeeper might become a controller as you grow. It might become a CFO eventually, depending on the size you, you become and if you have multiple practices, but you just have to have that data. Meet with that team at least quarterly. And on those meetings, you're wearing your entrepreneurial hat where you're not encumbered by the laws of tax and the IRS, but instead you're just asking questions to discover ways to save tax. It's your team's job to tell you whether it's legal or illegal. And obviously, you always want to be ethical about this. So when it comes to tax deductions, which is the second bucket, the biggest question is, how does this relate to my business? When you're doing things, you ask that question. And in asking that question, your biggest friend is documentation if you choose to take the tax deduction. Now, my CPA, I'll say, hey, I'm going to Europe. Can I write this off? His answer is no. I'll say, what if I'm filming where my great-grandfather's from and we integrate that into the origin story of the documentary we're filming? 
What if I have a mastermind and I have some people over? What if I'm hosting some of my clients who are friends at the villa? You know, so I just start going through, what if we do our annual corporate compliance meeting? And by the end of the phone call, 50% of the trip is tax deductible, right? So that's your job. And, and part of those questions I ask is, what are some of the coolest things you've done for other clients that might relate to me? What new things are going on that we might be able to take advantage of that would help us with saving tax? You know, just you're asking questions and brainstorming and you're just asking, is there any way that you can write things off that are legal and ethical? So that's a huge way that people are going to save taxes through communication and being proactive and asking these questions. The third piece or the third column of the three is reclassification of income. And this is where most people overpay taxes. So I've found a ton of chiropractors are sole proprietors. First off, if you're a sole proprietor, you have a 400% increased chance of audit. Second is I can almost guarantee if you have any level of income, you're overpaying on taxes as a sole proprietor. And most importantly, you have unlimited amounts of liability on the personal side. Sure, you might have malpractice insurance, but the bottom line is anything that happens from a business standpoint comes onto you and your assets personally if you don't set up a corporation. So let's talk about how you can reclassify income. So if you have a business partner, you can set up an LLC and you can tax that LLC as a partnership, otherwise known as Schedule K, that has tax advantages. Or let's say you don't have a partner and you set up an S corporation. As an S corporation, you can differentiate your income, which allows you to take active income and make it more passive for tax purposes. So W-2 is your highest taxable income. That's your active income. That's when your table side. So it gets hit with self-employment tax, which is 15.3%. Even when you max that out, you have at least 3.2% for Medicare and Medicaid. And above $250,000, you have an additional 3.7% success tax, sundry tax, or Obama tax that was initiated several years ago. So when you take a salary, that's when you're operating in the business. But when you take a distribution from your S-Corp, that's when you're working on instead of in not as a technician, but now as the business owner, you can take a distribution or some people might call it a dividend, but you don't pay that self-employment tax on that. So that could save you up to 15.3%. Now, let's say that you sell some supplements. Let's say that you do some decompression. I don't know. I mean, there's all sorts of different things and don't judge what I'm saying here based upon your philosophy. I'm saying, what are you doing in your practice? It's a peripheral income. You can actually put that in a C corporation if it's less than $50,000 of income. And a C-Corp is taxed at a lower rate on the first $50,000. So that would be another example. Or you can have a medical reimbursement account of up to $20,000 in a C-Corporation, which is pre-tax dollars. You have to be careful if you have multiple employees because you might have to offer it to more than yourself. Or you can retain earnings in a C-Corporation, meaning you don't have to distribute and don't have to pay tax in the year that it's earned. You pay tax on the personal side when it's distributed. You pay the corporate tax on the way in on a C-Corporation. But on an LLC and S-Corp, that's all pass-through, meaning you have to pay taxes in the year that it's earned, whether you spend it or not. So those are just an example of three different types of corporations and the reasons you might use them. But let's talk about just a couple quick ideas of how you take you know, taxable income and make it tax-free or ordinary income, which is at 37.5% at the top level, and make it capital gain, which might be able to cut it as much as in the half. One is learning about charitable remainder trusts. If you're charitable in in nature and you ever want to make a donation of a piece of real estate, if you own your own building, of your business or, or shares in your business, or even a highly appreciated stock. So you can donate and get a tax deduction 
for what the remainder amount that will be left with the charity after you die is estimated to be. And you don't pay tax when you decide to sell that asset. So that would be one way to take taxable income and make it tax-free. I mean, if you're selling a business, I don't want to go too deep in the weeds here, but there's things called ESOPs and CAPS trusts that you can learn about that might allow you to sell your business very tax efficiently, but you need to know about them now, not at the time of sale. Now, where you can take ordinary income and make it a capital gain is obviously when you build equity in a business, that becomes a capital gain instead of taking a distribution, which is ordinary income. Or if you're a big enough business, there's something called a captive insurance agency, which allows you to set up your own insurance company, self-fund it pre-tax. And if you don't have an insurance claim, then you get to take the money out of your bit, out of that uh, insurance agency as a capital gain. Now, that's not for most people. And there's some audit risk to it. So you got to be really careful. But I just want to give some examples. And I don't expect every listener to go, I know exactly what Gary <laughs> saying here. But the bottom line is, I want you just to know. Build a team and be proactive, step one. Every three years, you can go back and amend your returns, so get a different set of eyes on those returns in case something was missed and you get the money back. Number two, set up a system to ask, is this, does this relate to my business, and document it so you turn expenses into tax deductions. Some examples are, I pay my kids. You can pay your kids up to $12,000. That's tax deductible to the business. And tax-free to them, even though it's money that you control in an account. So if you truly have something you can pay them for, that's an option. Some of that could be $2,500 for a modeling fee, putting them up pictures in the office and on your website. Uh, that's maybe the easiest one. Or the Augusta rule. You can rent your home out to your business, whether that's for employees, whether that's for patient event, or whether that's for vendors that are supporting you. And you get to write that off in the business as an expense, but you don't have to claim that as personal income if it's under 14 days a year that you do that. So those are two expenses people face all the time that have now become tax deductions. So I could go through hundreds of those, but just to give some examples. And then the third thing was to reclassify income, choosing the right type of corporation, potentially having a tax attorney where you can start doing things like turning you know, active income into more passive income for tax purposes, ordinary into capital gains, or taxable income into tax-free income. This is where most people overpay on tax and this is 100% above board, legal, ethical. It's just being in the know. That's great because I'm obviously I, it's it's challenging to know that. But just like you said, developing that team is is huge. Um, one of the things I wanted to touch on, and, and this is me being selfish, is I do own my real estate, my building that my practice is in. Yep. And you mentioned something about an engineer. Could you touch on that? So an engineer is a cost segregation engineer. So owning real estate might mean that you have that real estate for up to 39 years before you get to write it off fully. Whereas a lot of the things in the building or with the building aren't going to last 39 years. So for tax purpose, the engineer can come in and do a study and say, hey, you can write this off in three years, five years, seven years, different aspects of the building from the paint on the walls to the carpet to some of the infrastructure, lighting, electronics. There's all sorts of different aspects there. And so now they're allowing you to accelerate your depreciation for tax purposes. So that's what an engineer might bring to the table if you own commercial real estate. Perfect. I'm going to dive into that one for sure. You know, and I think that's something that um, is huge because obviously you mentioned kind of that scarcity mindset and people having that. And it seems like there's many layers of that. And, and one of them is just not looking at where you can save money. And so tax strategies is a huge one. And maybe you can save money and you can put that towards some of the debt that we talked about earlier. So it kind of comes 
full circle and it really helps with that. The next thing I wanted to kind of dive into, because this is a common concern I get from, from many chiropractors, and obviously this is a huge concern for, for anybody that's owning businesses, but that is, um, that is cash flow. So can, can we dive into that topic a little bit and see some of the best practices as far as monitoring that and, and really sustaining that? Yeah, I think from cash flow, let's create kind of the mindset around it first. And second, how to kind of really manage it properly without having to budget, because I'm not a big fan of a budgetary mindset. It has us restrict instead of expand. So the first thing is, while most people here live within their means, the first thing they think about doing is cutting back and eliminating. And that can hold you back from building true wealth because no one shrinks their way to wealth. So there's two other ways to live within your means. One is to be more efficient, which we just talked about tax, which if you can save on taxes, that's being more efficient. More money comes to the bottom line for the same work that you were doing from a physical effort or mental effort inside of the business. The third thing, and it's the game changer. So the first way you can live within your means is budget. The second is to be more efficient, which there's tax. There's everything from the loan interest rates that you pay, the fees you pay on investments or the costs you pay for insurance that can be recovered and put back in your pocket through some financial savvy. But the third way is the game changer. It's to expand your means. Continually seek to deliver more value, solve bigger problems, and find ways to serve that you can either impact more people or more deeply impact the people that you do serve. And that's kind of the first, the mindset behind it. Now, looking at cash flow, I find that differentiating our expenses is one of the most useful ways to monitor and then improve cash flow. And there's four main types. The first type of expense is destructive. So destructive would be borrowing to consume. Borrowing to go on a trip, not having an asset behind it, coming back, and now you have a loan you have to pay off with no asset attached to it. Another destructive expense, I think, is heroin. I'm pretty sure that's always... <laughs> that definitely is destructive. <laughs> yeah. so, but just any time there's, there's expenses that are coming out that aren't providing value or that are tending to lead you towards debt. The second type of expense is a lifestyle expense. Lifestyle expenses are some of the most fun, enjoyable things that we have in our life. And the key is with the lifestyle expense, just pay cash for these. Don't borrow to consume. So want to go on that trip? You have the cash to do it. Don't feel guilty. Go enjoy it. The caveat to lifestyle expenses where you may borrow, there's two hybrids, a house and a car. So a house isn't necessarily providing cash flow. It's typically extracting cash flow. But at the same time, there's an asset attached to it that you get to build memories and enjoy and live in. And look, I tried to convince my wife, <laughs> let's rent for a while. But she knew we could afford a home. So we bought a home because that was meaningful. She means a lot to me. So we got a home. So I, I get that. The second thing is a car. A car is typically a depreciating asset. But sometimes we don't have the cash to pay for a car. So borrowing on those two things are two lifestyle-based expenses that have enough impact on our productivity and aspects of our life that it may make sense just to borrow on those areas. The third type of expense, the Rockefellers totally understood a protective expense. It's building up liquidity and having enough staying power that if you ever have a, a health issue, a financial surprise, or you're going to take time off to be with your family for whatever reason, maybe it's a, a emergency within the family, you've got the cash to handle that. The other part of the protective expenses are having the right corporate structures, having the right insurances to transfer risk, whether that's car, home, liability, you know, medical, life insurance, um, business owner policies disability, those types of things, that's protective expenses. 
people that neglect these typically have to start over pretty frequently because something happens they weren't prepared for. And the fourth type of expense kind of relates to the third way to live within our means. It's a productive expense. Hiring the right employees, having the right education, having the right mentors, having the right infrastructure and systems, having the right office or equipment that allows you to, to deliver the what you deliver, the right marketing dollars that lead to more money in your pocket. Those are productive expenses. Yeah. And that last one for sure is something I'm trying to talk to chiropractors a lot about is, you know, sometimes you have to spend money on marketing. A, a lot of chiropractors avoid that. They kind of have the mentality, I'm a doctor, people should be knocking down my door, coming in, referring and all that. And, you know, if, if you're getting an ROI on your marketing dollars, it's it can be like printing money, right? Totally. And, you know, it takes monitoring it and managing it in order for that to maintain because unfortunately something can work one moment and then not work the next. But here's the deal. Whether we want it to be this way or not, it's, I mean, I went to Total Solutions 10 years ago and they show that clip. At the end, they showed a clip of um, Kevin Costner in Build of Dreams. And it's the whole, if you build it, they will come. Unfortunately, that's not true. If you build it, they will not come if they don't know about it. And sometimes the people who offer the most value and are the best technicians don't make the most money because they're too much of a secret, <laughs> right? Yeah, so, absolutely. So that's absolutely imperative and necessary. 100%. So those are the four types of expenses. Now, the way to optimize cash flow is to put out all the expenses in a month and take a look and see what destructive ones need to be eliminated. Manage your lifestyle ones. The best way to manage those is to pay yourself first. So you set up a separate account. I call it a wealth capture account. And every time you pay yourself from your business or you get a paycheck, take a percentage off the top and put it in a separate account. It used to be the richest man in Babylon talked about 10%. And that was true before inflation and fractionalized banking and the tax system came into play. Now with taxes, we've got to have more money in the future to kind of prepare for that. So my belief is it's at least 15%, if not 18 Now, if you hit 15%, you set up another account called a living wealthy account, put the additional 3% in it, and that's guilt-free spending to reward yourself for doing the right things. Getting to the 15%, comes from saving on tax, saving on interest, saving on hidden fees and commissions of investments, saving on insurance costs that have duplicate coverages or improper structure. So it's not by scrimping, it's by being more efficient or by increasing your income and taking that increase to get to that percentage. And we're not talking about business revenue, we're talking about personal income. And then when you hit that 15%, because we've got 3% for inflation, 3% for propensity to consume, which just means you're going to have a better lifestyle in the future. 3% for planned obsolescence because stuff breaks down that needs to be replaced. 3% for technological change because we're buying things now that didn't even exist 20 years ago. And now they're commonplace, right? So we got taxes, 3%, inflation, 3%, planned obsolescence, 3%, 3% for technological change, and then the 3% for propensity to consume. So that's our 15%. Then that Last 3% is for living wealthy, which you can spend along the way as a reminder that you're doing the right things. So you're not just scrimping and waiting for one day someday, but you're enjoying and living wealthy along the way. So you set up up to two accounts, a wealth capture account and a living wealthy account. Every time you get a paycheck, an automatic percentage goes in that account and progress over perfection done is better than perfect. Just start with something and whatever percentage that is and work up to it as you start to learn about the things that we're talking about here save on money, expand your business. You just have to start somewhere, build the habit. So part of the way to get there is look at every loan you have 
and see if there's a way to renegotiate the interest rates, restructure the loan to lower the, the amount of payment on it. And one of the ways to start paying those off is learning the cash flow index, which is take the loan balance of every loan you have individually and divide it by its minimum monthly payment. So loan balance divided by minimum monthly payment will spit out a number. That number is less than 50. You have a cash hog on your hands. It means it's a pretty high payment in relationship to a relatively low balance. If you have something over 100, that's a fairly efficient loan, meaning it's not requiring a lot of cash flow out of your pocket for the amount of money that you borrow. So what you want to do is only attack one loan at a time with paying extra if you're trying to pay it off and only pay towards the one with the lowest cash flow index because it's going to give you the biggest bang for your buck on improving your cash flow. Now, when you pay those off, you might be able to renegotiate other interest rates, restructure loans, or maybe find underperforming assets if you have any certificates of deposit or underperforming stocks and bonds or you name it, treasury bills and notes or savings accounts. It may make sense just to pay off with a lower interest rate that you're earning, a higher interest rate that you're paying and get a guaranteed return and a better cash flow. So there's a way to kind of structure and almost game that system to truly support and help you. I find that people can shave off anywhere from a fourth of the time to a third of the time it would normally take to get rid of these loans or at minimum just improve their cash flow in the next 30 days so they can invest that back into their business or they could build up their liquidity and savings or they can just enjoy life more along the way. Perfect. Thank you. That's uh, helpful. You know, I think the the debt concerns people a lot and having an actual game plan is is the first step to it. So thanks for laying that out. Let's dive into some of the latest work that we've discussed, and that is your your win-then-play aspect of things. What's going on with that? So win-then-play has been something that I, I personally started to discover in 2006. It was during the Super Bowl. I'm watching the Super Bowl. I'm sitting there thinking, I'm like, I can't remember if it was 05, 06. It was one of these games where the game wasn't that entertaining for me. It didn't even matter for the NFL. They already made their money. They had pre-sold the tickets. They had pre-sold the TV rights. They had sold out all the concerts and NFL experience and all the things in the city that was leading up to and all around the Super Bowl. And the list kind of goes on. And I was like, that's win, then play. NFL won before the game was played. And so I started to think about this and other aspects of life and thought, where else has this happened? And so now, as we fast forward to today, there's a lot of places this happened. Like if we're familiar with a lot of these micro funding sites like Indiegogo and Kickstarter, I mean, there's a lot of people that are launching a product. They raise the funds by saying, hey, you'd be the first person to get this product, which means they've already pre-sold it. They already have an audience. And some of them go way above and beyond what their target goal is. And for the consumer, a lot of times they're getting bonuses because they're waiting and they're getting all this value. And this is kind of what I did with Killing Sacred Cows. I pre-sold 22,000 copies of that book by giving people an audio recording, a teleseminar series, and a DVD as soon as they made their payment, even though the book might not be coming out for eight, nine months, depending on when they bought. So they got these extra bonuses. I got this momentum and already had this audience that was ready for the book to be received and built this buzz, which was very win and play. When the book was released, there were already all these pre-sales that I knew were going to take place. I, I did this with the first time I filmed the video series back in 2008. I pre-sold $150,000 of the video series to my already existing tribe and fans at a 50% of what the rate was going to be when the product was finished for A, them giving me feedback. B, them not being able to access the entire course right away, 
And it also created deadlines for me to get this done because it was 49 videos that we had to film over a seven-week period of time, which meant we had to get done with seven per week over that time. And sometimes we were filming at one or two in the morning, but I already knew that there was an audience. I'd already received the money. That money allowed us to build out a TV studio, buy all the equipment and have the editors and have the energy knowing that there was someone that was going to be at the show. I feel like a lot of people in business are hoping people show up but they don't know till they actually host something or do something and they're putting out videos that no one's ever watched and they're not getting feedback on. So those are just a few win and play examples. And look, it works in real estate where people make money on the buy of real estate, not waiting for it to appreciate because they have the knowledge and know how or know what the things that need to be fixed up or know what the comparables are. Like we can go example after example, but I'm here to tell you that most of the population is playing not to lose, which is you know, kind of in that scarcity mindset, just getting by, just trying not to make mistakes and not putting themselves out there and playing really small. And that's a pretty terrible existence and very risky. And the next risk is those people that just go all in. They redline all the time. They reinvest every dollar that they earn. They spend more than what they make because they're playing to win, hoping that one day they're going to strike gold. Maybe they'll be able to sell their business for a multiple or build up multiple practices before they're ready and before they know how to hire associates or before they have systems at play. And they're just going to work themselves to death and will their way of getting there. But the win then play model is a much better model that once people understand it doesn't matter your race, your religion, your background, your the town that you're from. I mean, it, it actually levels the playing field and allows you to make sure it's profitable from day one. I mean, I was in, in Vietnam back in 2009 with guys like Joe Polish, Tim Ferriss, Matt Mullenweg, who's the founder of WordPress. And as I was talking to Matt, I was like, this guy has open source coding for WordPress where people that are paying him for the things that he's built are also building things for free. So his customers are actually supporting his business. That's a win then play model. And it's all over the place in today's sharing economy with the internet and the advent of that. I mean, it's just a beautiful place to be. And if people can really figure that out in their own model, like I've just seen contractors that back in the day, all they would do is place bids and hope they'd win based upon price. Trying to win based upon price is a playing not to lose. And it's not a good situation. Instead, I've seen people that add so much value on assessments and analysis that you get paid for that. And that becomes a natural place where people say, well, I'd love to engage your services if you could offer this. So they're getting paid up front instead of trying to compete on price. I mean, I could go for hours just on the topic and get really excited about it. You know, it's actually funny because I just lived this. Um, prior, you know, when I was growing my practice from 09 up, I definitely was redlining it too much and trying to grow too fast. And a lot of things came to head in 2015 with insurance reimbursement and stuff like that. And I just, you know, kind of gather myself and, and really push forward. But then I've been implementing, not even really knowing at the time, but I've done it twofold. One is a colleague of me and myself, we started the Chiropractic Success Academy and we actually launched in early July with the goal of 50 chiropractors and we got 81 and we weren't even launching it yet until August 1st. So we, you know, we just were basically doing that and we, wow, we had the audience and we had the the demand for it. And so we did the outline, we have everything planned and all that stuff. But, you know, if five people would have signed up, we would have scrapped it, right? We didn't. We had a, a really, really good captive audience. And now we have a product that we can 
to roll out to them. And it's pretty exciting. That's one. And then two, uh, two years ago, I had a, a large corporation come to me. Uh, I do a lot with ergonomics and they wanted me to build out a digital based ergonomics platform. And they were willing to pay me ahead of time to do it. So I was like, yeah. So I gave them a number. They said, yes, I took probably half of that and spent it on the platform and rolled it out. And the rest I, I use for other business aspects of growing it. And so it's something that I've kind of been doing. And, and now to hear you lay it out like that definitely makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I mean, I remember having one of my mentors say, I've been coaching someone that hosts an event and there's a thousand people at this event. He wants me to teach at it. He goes, I'm not, I don't, I'm not a speaker. So could we develop a, a video program and go speak at this and sell it? I said, well, why don't we just film a video together, see how we are on camera together, see how that goes, and then let's write an outline together of what the course would look like, and let's offer that to the group, and if it goes really well, we'll build it, and if it doesn't, we don't need to go build it. And so he and I worked very different. He wanted to prepare and prepare and prepare and prepare and prepare. It was just like overkill. And then once he got up on stage and got all this applause and people taking pictures of his slides, Everything we prepared for, he abandoned and started going off his time markers. So we never had a chance to even make the offer. So I was just glad that we didn't do all this pre-work of building the courses and filming and having a lot of expense. We chose not to do the program. I chose not to do the business with him because it wasn't kind of the way I like to do business. And he actually went and built it with someone else where that someone else already, it was actually in the chiropractic world. And that someone else actually had already had a way to pre-sell and they did a phenomenal together. So they found a better fit together. And I prevented myself from getting into something that wouldn't have been enjoyable for me. So it like, that's another example. Makes sense. Makes sense. All right. I don't want to take up too much more of your time, but uh, if you had only 60 seconds to, to do a little public service announcement and to kind of let us know where we can find some of your information, uh, what would you say? A public service announcement in 60 seconds, this one right here, as rudimentary as it is, would transform the world if everybody understood this. The greatest tax shelter in the world is to earn another dollar. I've heard far too many people say, if I earn any more money, I'm going to get killed with taxes. So I've got to slow down. There's something called a marginal tax bracket versus an average tax bracket. An average tax bracket is if you made 100 grand and you paid 17,000 in tax, you paid an average of $17,000. A marginal bracket says the first dollars you earned were only taxed at 10%. And then maybe let's just use really simple numbers. Zero to 30,000 is taxed at 10%. 30 to 75,000 is taxed at 15% and doesn't go back retroactively and tax those first dollars higher. They get set aside. And then from their 75,000 up, you get taxed at 25%, ending at a 17% average. So when you earn more money, it never retroactively hurts your previous dollars and you're only paying the higher tax bracket on the next dollar earned, which, by the way, you still make 75 cents more into your bottom line after paying tax than if you didn't earn the dollars. So always produce, always add value. Never let the tax tail wag the dog because it actually prevents the world from getting the best you have to offer. And it creates a scarcity mindset that has you get into shrinking based thinking rather than productive, abundant value based thinking. That's good. No, I mean, that's the type of stuff that chiropractors need to hear because they're part of it, I think, is they've been beaten down by the insurance companies. And so it's like the insurance companies have done that to them in a lot of ways. And, you know, maybe they were making a hundred dollars visit before now they're making 40. And so it's just driving it home, that scarcity mentality, but definitely can get out of it for sure. So here's the deal. I just want to be really, really clear about this. There's sometimes that not taking insurance in certain situations actually improves your bottom line. 
we've done an analysis with chiropractors that by the time the insurance came in, it was costing them $11, the chiropractor, because of the overhead and because of the cost of the office. And that's not even calculating what their time is worth. So it's important to know your numbers. And it's really hard when you're starting out to say no to certain things, because sometimes staying busy feels good. But sometimes busyness is the enemy to scale. And business is the enemy to you having a great life. So we've got to be really deliberate with those choices. Absolutely. I agree with that. I've, I've slowly gotten out of network with the insurances as they've cut down and it has not harmed my bottom line. My schedule may look a little bit different, but that doesn't matter. And I think that's some of it too, is chiropractors always throw around numbers like, oh, how many new patients? How many office visits do you have this week? And it doesn't matter. Obviously, it's the, the profit. <laughs> Where can our audience find you? All right. Well, there's a couple of things. They can go to wealthfactory.com forward slash podcast. And if you go to wealthfactory.com forward slash podcast, what you're going to find is great resources like tax guides for all these things that I've been talking about that we can build a relationship and give you more depth because I went fast and furious during part of this. Or if they would like, they can get a download of my book, What Would the Rockefellers Do?, which you don't have to be worth what the Rockefellers are worth. I just I, I basically extract that and say, even if you're starting out or even if you're doing really well, what are the principles you could learn and the methodologies that when applied allow you to capture more wealth, cut out the middleman, earn more interest instead of pay it, and, and have downside protection and liquidity, plus how do you build the right structure around that that I call the family legacy ring with something called the family retreat system, the family constitution, which is in your own words, something that goes into your estate plan, and the biggest advantage they have in a family office, which is building a financial team that communicates and coordinates so that nothing gets kind of broken and, and you know misidentified along the way. If they just grab that book, I'm willing to make an investment in them. So it would be on me. They just text 801-503-9667. That's 801-503-9667. Put in the subject line WWRD, WWRD, 801-503-9667. You'll get a download of the book immediately. If you actually want the book in your hands, you like you like to physically hold it and read it, just pay the shipping and handling and I'll cover the cost of the book. And then, uh, you know, hopefully we can build a relationship and I can add some value to your life. We've been working in the chiropractic profession on this level for over 10 years now with great success. And uh, it's an awesome profession. People didn't say, hey, I want to get really rich. Let me be a chiropractor. They said, I want to help people out. Let me be a chiropractor. And I'm here to say my son is definitely disappointed I didn't choose to be one. <laughs> he thinks, oh, I'm just a financial guy. that helped. I'm like, buddy, I help chiropractors. He's like, yeah, but you're not a real doctor. I'm like, buddy, buddy, like that's hurtful. So he, just cause we're always taking him to chiropractors and he's like, it'd be nice if I, he could just get this done at home. So I just laugh about that. But, uh, yeah. So hopefully these resources are helpful and I can, uh, improve your life a bit. But I'll put that in the show notes. I thank you for gifting us that. And, um, I really appreciate your time. All right, man. Thank you for listening to another episode of the modern chiropractic marketing show with Dr. Kevin Christie. Tune in next week for another episode that will enhance your marketing, business, and practice growth. Also, don't forget to subscribe to Dr. Christie's Modern Desk Jockey podcast and share with your desk-sitting patients. In the Modern Desk Jockey, Dr. Christie provides health and wellness best practices from some of the leading experts in the corporate wellness industry. Remember, chiropractic practice isn't easy, but it shouldn't be overwhelming. Keep leveling up.